welcome to episode number 161 of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm your online editor, and I also help out with social media for the Northern Miner. And speaking of social media, we have the Quebec Mean ANLG Conference, which is happening in Quebec City. That's from November 18th to 21st. We have a little booth there, so we thought we'd mention it and give them a little plug. If you are in Quebec City, do stop by. And uh, we are there with the Canadian Mining Journal, and we have free copies of the Northern Miner, as well as the Canadian Mining Journal available, as well as all sorts of other goodies there. So do stop by, and uh, yeah, that's the Quebec Mean NLG Conference in Quebec City. We have a special show for the investors today, John Hathaway. <laughs> I remember John Hathaway from about seven or eight years ago, around 2011, 2012, the last big gold bull market, or at least the last big run, John Hathaway, he was often interviewed. Anthony Vaccaro, the Northern Miner Group publisher, he interviews John Hathaway in Zurich, and that happened in November, so just last week. And it's pretty fascinating to get John Hathaway's view of the market in 2019. It sounds like he thinks that it's never been a bigger opportunity for gold investors, and they name names as far as the companies they're interested in. So it's sort of a bonanza for the investors today. So that is coming up as our feature interview as well. Tickets are still available for the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, and that's on Thursday, January 9th, 2020. So a great way to start the new year. It's the 32nd annual dinner and induction ceremony. So of course, great meal is included. And that is at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. So just go to CanadianMiningHallOfFame.ca, annual-ceremony, or just type it into Google, and you will see tickets are available. There's also a reception at 5.30, so you get the full opportunity to meet all your mining heroes. Also, we have our... Progressive Mine Forum videos are now at the bottom of our homepage. They've replaced the Briex stories, and if you're ever looking for those Briex stories, just put Briex into our search bar and you'll find a whole host of stories. But yeah, we have the Progressive Mind Forum is now uh, there, and we have some of the main presentations there. So if you weren't able to make it and see it, we're also going to feature some of those on the podcast in coming weeks. So if you prefer to listen, uh, be patient, and you'll hear it in the coming weeks. And speaking of gold commentators, we also have a new TNM Leaders with Jeffrey Christian, and that went up about a week and a half ago, and there's four videos of Jeffrey Christian just talking about advice on how to succeed in the business world. And I think Jeffrey Christian was at Goldman Sachs, and I think, if I remember right, CPM Group actually grew out of Goldman Sachs, and they purchased it out of Goldman Sachs, I believe. So... Jeffrey Christian has been in New York and Wall Street for a really long time. So take advantage of Jeffrey Christian's advice there. You can find us online at northernminer.com or on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And turning to the website, we have another story on unrest in Latin America. This one is by, once again, Tom Azapardi. The headline is, Unrest Escalates in Bolivia as Evo Morales Steps Down. 
It's a pretty shocking move. Evo Morales was seen to have a bit of an iron grip on power in Bolivia, similar to kind of a Hugo Chavez type figure. But it looks like he is gone. Uh, Mexico took him in, and the article says more than 20 people have died in clashes between protesters and security forces in Bolivia since disputed presidential elections last month and the resignation of Evo Morales on November 10th. The United Nations has warned that the country risks spinning out of control. Quote, the country is split, and people on both sides of the political divide are extremely angry. Michelle Bachelet, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, said on November 16th, In a situation like this, repressive action by the authorities will simply stoke the anger even further and are likely to jeopardize any possible avenue for dialogue. As the party mentions here, the unrest marks the end of one of the most stable and prosperous periods in the history of a country better known for countless coups and revolutions. And it's very complicated. I mean, it's true. I mean, I know a lot of Bolivians, and my impression from the people I know, that he really helped out the indigenous people outside of the cities who were incredibly poor. And so he, you know, I'm not sure how much you could call this redistribution, but it sounds like he redistributed the wealth really to these communities and really did lift a lot of people out of poverty. However, the bigger issue for a lot of the people from the cities was that Morales was becoming an authoritarian and there was a, there were a lot of Bolivians that didn't want the country to become another Venezuela. And I think even some of the protesters of the last few weeks were... That was, we are not Venezuela, was one of the chants I remember reading about. Anyway, so from what I understand, the real red flags happened in 2016, where he lost a referendum to allow a fourth term in office. And apparently there are term limits, like they have in the United States. But the courts that he packed with his supporters ultimately allowed him to go on what seemed to be pretty feeble reasoning, which was that he it was his human right to run as president. So at this point, I think a lot of people wanted to get rid of him, but it created this real divide between the people in the cities who maybe just didn't want an authoritarian and the people outside of the cities who were finally seeing some kind of prosperity after, you know, brutal poverty. So that's sort of the tension in Bolivia right now. If you go to the article, uh, As a Party Has a Lot, on this, and he also talks about how this affects the mining sector. A couple more paragraphs just on that. Uh, Under Morales, foreign investment in the mining sector has been minimal compared to the tens of billions of dollars invested in neighboring Chile and Peru. Apart from Sumitomo's San Cristobal zinc mine launched launched in 2009, no new major mines have been built in the country this century. Instead, Morales was best known for seizing assets from multinationals such as Glencore's Vinto Tin Smelter and Kolkiri Zinc Mine. But with revenue from gas exports declining, squeezing the public finances, the country needs foreign investment to balance the books. So in recent years, the Morales government began to open up the mining sector to private investment again, passing legislation that allows private companies to explore and mine on land held by state company Comable. And so at the beginning of 2019, the government signed a deal with New Pacific Metals, And last month, it also signed a deal with Prophecy Development. And apparently, Pan American Silver has a mine in Bolivia, and that's already existing. 
So yeah, so as a party goes into detail on that, so this is must read if you are mining in Latin America or are interested in mining in Latin America, or frankly, if you're just interested in global politics, uh, this is a pretty fascinating article. So that's our headline right now. So you can check that out on northernminer.com. Also, we have more political unrest, this time in the DRC or the Democratic Republic of Congo, where Banro is calling for force majeure in the DRC. Now, for those of you that don't know what force majeure is, uh, we have a lot of French in this episode so far, don't we? Uh, we say hi again to our Quebec friends at the Quebec Mine Energy Conference. And force majeure is basically when something like a, quote, act of God or something crazy happens, you can basically say like a war that you have no control over, that a contract has been nullified or is on hold until that situation is rectified. So Banro, because of the deteriorating security situation, is declaring force majeure and arguing for that. And they have a contract with the government, uh, with the Democratic Republic of Congo. They have agreements that they have to live up to. So I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from the story just so you get a sense of what's going on here. Again, it's more rebel groups. Unlike the recurring attacks by armed jihadists in Burkina Faso, the rebel groups that are making mining impossible for Banro Corp and the DRC are motivated more by commercial than religious reasons, CEO Brett Richard says. Quote, they run artisanal mining activities in the country and they can generate substantial revenue, Richard says of the well-organized and heavily armed groups. Quote, they want to control the region and they do not want Western mines being there. They want to operate in our pits and they want to take back what we have. Attacks against the company began in 2015 at its Namoya mine in the southern province of Manima and have continued each year since. Last year, there were five serious attacks with casualties in the double digits. So, yeah, West Africa, it's a pretty crazy place to do business these days from what you're hearing. But I was just listening to that John Hathaway interview, which we're going to feature, and I believe he says basically... If you're not in U.S., Canada, or Australia, you're kind of start to be in the headline risk category, meaning that you may face political risk. Your stock may be valued lower, and you can see by this story, you can see why. Let's just look a little bit more at the attacks that have happened. The perilous security situation between 2015 and 2018 meant that Namoya operated only 20 to 30% of the time during that period. And Banro declared bankruptcy in November 2017 and emerged in May 2018 with two principal shareholders, Gramercy Funds Management, Beijing International Investments, a Chinese state-owned enterprise. Gramercy hired Richards to stabilize and rehabilitate the company in an attempt to put Namoya back into production. Within 23 days of Richards arriving in the DRC for Banro, however, Namoya was attacked yet again. Banro decided to proceed with a restart of Namoya in March 2019. At the time, Richard says, the security level was green with risk at a low level. Quote, although the threat was still there, we felt it was safe enough to deploy capital, people, and equipment to restart the mine. Namoya was ramping up production in June and July and about to turn cash flow positive, he says, when employees were abducted on July 26th and held for 41 days. The workers were, quote, tortured and their basic human rights violated daily beyond comprehension, Richard says. 
one of the employees is still under constant medical care. After the release of the last hostage on September 5th, Banro continued to receive death threats from Sheikh Hassan, the leader of the Mai Mai Malika, including over the radio. Hassan warned of further terror and attacks should Banro reopen the mine, Richard says. The situation became untenable, and on September 15th, the mine was evacuated and put on care and maintenance. There's a lot more to this story. Uh, Richards, the CEO and president of Banro, he met with the president of the DRC, and uh, yeah, they're trying to work stuff out. Sounds like he's confident that they are going to sort it out. It's a security situation. There is confusion about the force majeure because when people don't get their money, they get unhappy. Yeah, so there's a lot more to this story. We just want to call your attention to it. And you see the dangers of mining here. Here we are in story number two and more political instability. And there are just a couple of other stories I just want to point to that are of note. Hart Gold, who has the Sugar Zone gold mine in northern Ontario, they cut their production guidance and they've raised their costs. They're all in sustaining costs. And so this is a mine that's gotten quite a bit of attention over the last few years. Like They had a big uh, press opening I think it was like last year or earlier this year. That's actually in this article. We have a a shot of that. And so it's kind of a high-profile mine, and now they're significantly cutting their production guidance. I'm going to read just a paragraph or two. The company has cut its production guidance for the year to between 24 and 26,000 ounces of gold from its previous guidance of 39,200 ounces, so significantly lower. All-in sustaining costs are forecast to jump to between $2,000 and $2,200 U.S. per ounce, surpassing earlier guidance of $1,300 to $1,350 per ounce. So here they are in a stable political jurisdiction, and now they're getting surprises in their underground development of the mine. And the reasons they give is there's a delay in the startup of the paste fill plant and lower than expected underground development rates at the Sugar Zone mine. So a pretty challenging situation for Hart Gold. So I'm sure we will continue to follow them as we always have. We have several stories on Hart Gold. Again, feel free to do a, a search on Hart Gold and Sugar in our search box and you'll probably find a dozen articles, maybe more. And just one more production update. Para Resources has poured the first Dore Bar at its Gold Road Mine in Arizona, which is just north of the border with California and Nevada. Ian Harris, the company's president, expects the mine to produce a Dore Bar two to three times a month before ramping up to 2,500 to 3,000 ounce gold per month during the first quarter of 2020. And a quick quote from Ian Harris. The Dore pour was a significant milestone, bringing the full production cycle to completion from mining through milling, processing, and smelting. This is by far our flagship and the most significant project that we have. So a little update from Para Resources there, and feel free to check that out again if you want to learn more about that project on northernminer.com. And finally... We have a recycling story, and uh, this is by our contributor, Denise Heckbert, and apparently companies like Apple are turning to recycled rare earth elements 
to help provide the REEs that are necessary for the phones, particularly the Taptic engine, which helps move your phone. I guess they have some powerful magnets in there to make it feel like you're actually typing on a keyboard. Denise also goes into recycling lithium and also cobalt and everything that's being done in that area. So this is a very uh, interesting piece on the whole nature and challenge of recycling. And she does point out that there are a lot of challenges that recycling uh, faces, but it's becoming more and more credible as an alternative. And here you have Apple uh, leading the way. I'll, I'll read a couple of paragraphs. Apple is using recycling rare earth elements in a key component of its newest iPhone 11 models, which hit the market in September. Recycled REEs are employed in a part called the Taptic Engine, which allows the iPhone to mimic a physical button click. The part represents only one quarter of the REEs in an iPhone. The move will enable Apple to secure a steady supply of the needed REEs rather than rely on Chinese mines, which produced 70% of REE ore in 2018, according to the United States Geological Survey. A greater focus on recycling could also help protect Apple from the price fluctuations that REEs can be subject to due to their relatively small volumes. For now, Apple is getting the REEs from an unnamed outside supplier that retrieves them from manufacturing waste, not recycled devices. But the electronics giant is also experimenting with its own robot called Daisy, which it claims can disassemble 200 iPhones in an hour, enabling it to recover REEs and cobalt from old iPhones. Apple is one of many betting on recycling as a source of rare earth metals and other elements like cobalt and lithium. And Denise Heckbert, she also uh, alludes to Geomega Resources. They've actually talked at our Progressive Mind Forum last year, and they're in the business of recycling REEs. So they're involved. American Manganese is involved. Yeah, so that is going on in the strategic metals space. And the name of that story, if you want a deep dive on it, is Companies Bet on Recycling to Secure Strategic Metals. So that is also on northernminer.com. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. Let's see what our friends at infomine.com have to say. If you ever want to find these quotes, just go do put a search into Google, Infomine and metal prices, or just go to infomine.com. And yeah, so on November 19th, gold is at $1,466.05. That's about $11 higher than last week. Silver is at $17.05 per ounce. And that is about 28 cents higher than last week. Platinum is also higher at $895.81. And last week was at $868.26. And palladium is slightly higher at $1,732.51. And last week was at $1,706.18. So... Palladium kind of rocket launched over the last, say, six weeks. If we go back actually three months, it was at $1,555. 
It went up to $1,780 as far as the quotes on the show. And last week is at $1,706, and now it's at $1,732.51. So it's a little lower than its high that we saw, but it's not that much lower. It, it's sort of holding steady. Maybe it's catching its breath. Maybe it's plateaued. So we shall see. We'll continue to follow Palladium for you. And on November 15th, we have a quote of copper at $2.64 per pound, and that is two cents lower than last week. Aluminum is at 79 cents, which is four cents lower than last week. Lead is at 91 cents, which is also four cents lower than last week. Nickel is at $6.80, which is 54 cents lower than last week when it was at $7.34. Tin is at $7.38, which is 18 cents less than last week. And cobalt remains at $16.10. You know, I look back a year on the chart, and there are times when this metal seems to plateau. So I'm not sending emails to InfoMine yet on cobalt. We're going to keep watching this for another little bit. But uh, it remains at $16.10. And finally, zinc has also taken a breather. It's four cents lower at a dollar and ten cents. And coming up, we have the esteemed John Hathaway, who is chairman of Tocqueville Management Corporation, and he is in conversation with the Northern Miner Group publisher, Anthony Vaccaro, at the 2019 Precious Metals Summit in Zurich. And this happened last week. If you're a gold investor, you'll want to hear this, so that's coming right up. There's also an introduction by Jessica Laventel, the CEO of the Precious Metals Summit, and she gives a bio of John Hathaway and also of Anthony, so I'll let her take it away, and I'll see you on the other side. second day of the 2019 Precious Metal Summit in Zurich. And this morning we have a real treat for you because sitting on our stage in front of you is John Hathaway, who is chairman of Tocqueville Management Corporation and Anthony Vaccaro, group publisher of the Northern Mining Group. And just a couple of words, because neither of these gentlemen need much introduction, but as most of you are aware, John Hathaway is one of the most prominent gold fund managers in the world, and he's a contrarian investor. Um, He speaks at a lot of events and in the media, and it's just great to have you here, John. Thank you very much. It's your Thanks. first time Thank in Zurich, but probably the Thank sixth you. time you've spoken at a Precious Metal Summit. So he's also chairman of our advisory committee for the group. So we really appreciate you being here. Anthony has had a long and excellent career with the Northern Miner. I remember back 10 years or so ago, you were a reporter. That's right. And now you're the publisher and not just the Northern Miner, which is one of the most preeminent publications that writes about mineral exploration and with a focus on the Canadian industry, but they also publish the Canadian Mining Journal and Mines Handbook. So it's a great pleasure and an honor to have you both here this morning, and I will now turn it over to Anthony. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica. Well, what an honor to sit down with John Hathaway. It's not often that you get to have quality time with such an esteemed investor with such a very strong career. John, you've had 25 years as a leading investor in the gold space, in the precious metal space, but your investment career goes back further than that. You started in the 1970s. 
So I thought to get things going, when you have that sort of perspective on the industry over that time, maybe have an opportunity to share with us what history can teach us about where we are in the gold equity cycle. And I have a chart here that we're going to put up. Here we're looking at gold equity dislocation from the S&P 500 since 1993. So a bit of a historical perspective. And we'll dive in a little bit from here. But I thought this would be a good place to start. If you could maybe talk about what we're seeing in this chart and how this is relevant to where we find ourselves at this particular juncture in time. Gold stocks have been laggards since 2011 by a huge factor. That suggests to me that we are more in a buying range than, than not. Uh, on the other side of it, stocks look very high. They're expensive. They've been driven by monetary policy, zero interest rates, and all of that sort of thing. So this is the widest gap between the gold mining complex and the S&P, obviously, in this almost 25-year history. And to me, it's it smells of opportunity. You know, we'll probably talk about reasons why, but I think this is a good place to start. And we will talk about reason why, particularly on your views on the gold price and gold equities. But this is also a good chart to talk a little bit about the S&P because of your career. You've seen where that's gone. My understanding is right now market breadth is extremely narrow, but price averages are near all-time highs. Right. That's a bit anomalous. That doesn't always happen. Is there other points in history where you've seen this sort of thing happen? And what, how did that play out? Yes, there may not be that many in the room that remember, but in, in the early 1970s, there was a phenomenon of the Nifty 50, and they were the 50 in stocks anointed by J.P. Morgan, and they were called various things. And in those days, I worked with a firm called Spencer Trask, which was one of the gurus behind these growth stocks. And the thesis was, the investment thesis was, that it never mattered what you paid for growth because growth would always bail you out. And, in fact, we call them desert island stocks. You could go to a desert island for 20 years and you would come back and your portfolio would be just fine. And they were also called one-decision stocks. It was, all you had to do was buy them. You know, the problem was the decision was the wrong decision. <laughs> the one decision was that you should never have owned them in the first place. Then you go back to then and you had – it isn't at the scale that we have today, but there, there was a kind of a mania – and the market averages were propped up by these 50 different, and they were such stalwarts as Avon Products, Polaroid, Eastman Kodak, and Simplicity Pattern. Those are four that come to mind. Most of them aren't even around today. So had you been on a desert island and come back even 10 years later, your, your portfolio would have been obliterated. And I kind of think today you see, you know, and, I, and this is not to disparage Amazon or Facebook or any of these investment darlings, but what we're seeing today in, in market behavior is investors crowding into a smaller and smaller number of stocks. And we're starting to see them come apart one by one. Um, Amazon is still doing okay. Google is probably doing okay. And Facebook in terms of stock performance. But we're starting to see one by one they're getting picked off. And certainly you see the unicorns like WeWork getting obliterated and Uber and so forth. To me, is very similar to what we saw in the behavior of the market in 74. And history rhymes and, and, and there's a repeat factor. And I kind of think that's where we are today. Uh, so, you know, beneath the surface, you, you see a lot of termites at work. And the market breadth isn't that great. And I think this quarter, FactSet 
is reporting a decline across the board in earnings of a, it's a little over 2%. And I don't want to rattle on too long about it, but what we're seeing today is not without precedent. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, it's very important that we, we take stock of the overall market. And another metric that's, uh, that's come up that could be telling is on the IPOs, so staying with earnings. So roughly 75% of IPOs this year has had negative earnings. The number was very high last year. Right. Again, with this idea of history rhyming, when's the last time we've seen those kind of levels of negative earnings? Well, IPOs? that's a little reminiscent of uh, dot-com. And I love the metrics there. What was WeWork's metric was community-adjusted EBITDA, whatever that is. Yeah. What is that? I don't know. <laughs> Even the SEC wouldn't let that go through. So, yeah, this is reminiscent of the dot-com bubble. And we all know how that played out. So the uh, big topic here that's been coming up in, in our industry over the last li- little while is the generalist investor, what it's going to take for mm-hmm. them to come back. So we're already pointing to some warning signs on the general market that might make them look elsewhere. We've had, as Ronnie pointed out yesterday, Ray Dalio is now being more positive on gold, Rick Reed from Blackwater, even David Rosenberg. So a lot of leading luminaries in the investment space are saying positive things about gold, but we still haven't seen that move in in terms of a healthy revaluation of gold equities. Why not? What's holding general fund managers back from investing in gold? I can think of a couple of reasons. One is there's probably still a hangover from the bad experience investors have had going back to the peak in 2011 about corporate governance, capital allocation decisions. So that would be one. In my view, uh, the industry is far better today on those counts than it was in 2010, 2011. A second thing is these stocks have been in hibernation for a long time. And we're probably one of the last men standing in terms of active management in the space. And that gets into passive ETFs, passive management. I think that's had a factor. And one of the things that suggests to me is that the flows in and out of the precious metal stocks are enabled and abetted by the availability of an instrument like GDX. And so investors, if they are generalists who want exposure here, don't have to do any homework on the underlying companies. And what we have noticed as generalist investors, as value investors, is a huge valuation gap between the high big cap names, Newmont, uh, Barrick, to name two, Newcrest would be an Agnico, those are four that come to mind, that probably account for 35 to 40 percent of the weighting in GDX. And then there are obviously other names represented. But if you go down the scale to the mid and smaller cap companies, it's not hard to find companies with valuations that are in the single digits in terms of multiple enterprise value to EBITDA, many of them generating free cash flow. And I don't rem- I've been doing this now for 20-plus years, and I don't remember any time in those two decades, two decades plus, that, that you could find those kinds of values. And as you mentioned earlier, I came into this business back in the early 70s, and there was a time in the late 1970s when you could find very good quality companies trading at single-digit P.E. multiples with dividend yields that were 3 4 5%. We don't have that in the gold mining space, but you're beginning to see companies pay dividends. But the value proposition today, beneath the surface, uh, and, and the big cap stocks to me are cheap relative to gold, but beneath the surface, the mid to smaller cap stocks are even cheaper. And again, I think going back to your first chart, it spells tremendous opportunity. If I were a generalist, which I'm not now, but when I, I would have looked at this. But the problem 
is that gold has gotten a stigma. And certainly to be sort of supportive of it within a, uh, let's say, an investment discussion in a, in a large uh, generalist firm, you immediately isolate yourself. And, you know, if you recommend a stock like Facebook to your peers and to your clients and the stock goes down, well, you're fine because you're just part, you know, everybody else is doing. But if you recommend, let's take one of our favorites, Torex, to your um, uh, peers and colleagues and it goes down, you could be out of a job because gold is the third rail of investment ideas. And I think all of this feeds into why the stocks are cheap and why the opportunity today, uh, again, as a generalist, contrarian is the best I've seen it since I've been at this. And the problem with going with the flow is it's very hard to generate alpha if you're going with the flow. So that's the opportunity for investors. This, and and um, I, I wish I had this chart for you, but I, I, it just came to me too late. If you look at the earnings revisions this year for the largest 20 S&P companies, on the left-hand side of the chart at the beginning of the year, it's a steady path downward. But if you look at the earnings revisions for the gold mining shares, it's a steady path from the left-hand side of the page to the right-hand side upwards, and they kind of cross over. So earnings for gold mining companies are going up. The gold price is higher. Costs have been relatively contained. And I think the sell-side analysts have generally been scrambling to up their estimates. And again, this is, it's, it's, it's a phenomenon where nobody seems to be taking notice. I mean, even though the stocks are up, you know, on average, you know, well into the 20 to 30 percent area. They're still way behind where, in my mind, they ought to be, given where the gold price is. Well, if the general investors don't want to take notice, then rival executives might be taking notice. So let's turn to M&A. Let me set the stage a little bit here. 50 percent of iron ore production comes from just four companies. 50 percent of copper production comes from just 10 companies. But 45% of gold production comes from 25 companies. When you hear a stat like that, does that argue for... We've, we did obviously see some M&A activity pick up this year, but is there still more that needs to happen? Well, the M&A that we've seen has been mergers of equals. So Barrick gets together with Rangold, Newmont gets together with Gold Corp. I'm not saying they're equal, but they're big mergers with not a lot of incremental um, value add for the... Um, shareholders of either company, and it's all will be worked out over time. What we haven't seen very much of, and what I think we will see more of, are, and once the dust settles, when these large companies kind of sort out their portfolios and probably divest a couple of their minds, reconfigure into different companies, I think you will see M&A where you have a good deal of accretion, not only for the company being bought, but for the acquiring company. And that's because, well, two things. You should back up and say that the mine life of the mining industry is the lowest in three decades. And so they're running out of headway for future production. And, you know, every year that goes by, and we've seen big cutbacks in exploration and development. Uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but the spend is down. You certainly see within uh, the mining companies, a lot of termination and, and cutbacks on exploration. So we also have seen that it's so much harder today to put a new mine into production. I mean, the, the barriers from ESG kinds of things and, and the reluctance of investors to fund 
the business because most of the funding now comes from streaming companies, very little in the way of bought deals, what, what I remember 15 years ago. The capital just isn't there to build a couple of billion dollar new mine. So we're on a glide path lower in terms of production for the industry. But I think that at some point there will be a wake-up call, and I think that'll come about because of higher prices in the metal and, and because these companies realize, and they, they know it. I mean, if I had talked to any CEO of a large company, they'd agree with everything I've said. But they're still hiding under their desks and looking at life with a rearview mirror in terms of taking advantage. To me, this is the time to be a buyer. They won't buy. I have to be careful what I say, but I don't think they're very good at selling low and buying high. I think, don't write that down. <laughs> um, but I think that's what's going to happen. But today, this is the incredible thing. You can buy an existing property that's producing earnings and cash flow at a 35% discount. We've done a lot of work on this to what it would cost you to start from scratch. And this is not it's obviously going to vary across the board, but it's that kind of discount. So, you know, it would be obviously accretive, the premium to the target company, but it could also be accretive to the shareholders of a major making that acquisition. So to me, this is a time to be a buyer if, you're, if I'm a corporate. But what are they doing? They're, they're, they're assuming reserves at $1,200 an ounce. And very little makes sense at $1,200 an ounce. So they're not going to make any acquisitions. And then they'll bump it up. And sooner or later, the, you know, the investors, shareholders, and the investment banking world will be all over them to make deals, and they'll, they'll cave in at higher prices. So our strategy has been to position these, um, many, many cases, single-asset companies that are driven, that are penalized because, because the headline risk for a single-asset company, I mean, the best example today was, is Semifo and Burkina Faso. I mean, it's, it's a terrible situation, but it's a great mine. A company generates free cash. They have to fix it, and they, it will get fixed. But right now, that's an extreme example. If Semifo were held in a broader portfolio, and you know, it would have, might could have been Rangold, but it would be, might be Goldfields today. But a, a larger company that had seven or eight different mines, sure, it would hurt the stock, but you wouldn't get this sort of dramatic, drastic reaction by investors to these admittedly very, very bad events. So we see many opportunities like this, and they're not, they're not necessarily in a difficult place like Burkina Faso. They're in the U.S., Canada, uh, Mexico. I mean, almost any place I mention other than the U.S. or Canada or Australia will be thought of as having some sort of headline risk. And if you're a single-asset company out, outside of the three jurisdictions I mentioned, you're penalized for that, being a single-asset company. And even there's, there's some companies even in good jurisdictions, which have the same discount. So uh, this, this is where we are today. When you look at the previous decade, when we went from gold was trading in the low three, uh, below 300, and there were similar things, different issues, but the hedging was one thing. There was a similar value, but not as good as there is today. And investor interest was absolutely zero when we started our gold fund in 98, as it is today. And, you know, there are many things that can change. And, but what you can see for sure is that the valuations back in 98, 99, and the valuations that are today will change for the better right across the board, big companies, small companies. And we can only guess at what the reasons are. I think 
you have to start with the premise that the gold price is on a rise to higher levels. And I'm not talking about 1700 or 1800 I mean, most people think in those terms, but as Jessica alluded to, I was on a panel like this with David Rosenberg at the Precious Metal Summit in uh, Beaver Creek. And David thinks, look, bonds have hit a cycle high, stocks have hit a cycle high in terms of valuation, and gold hasn't. So would it surprise him for gold to pick a number of 3,000? He said, absolutely not. And what I like about it is that he is not a gold bug. Mm-hmm. He is, he's, he's, to me, a very rational economic analyst, and he's looking at all the things that I can see, and he sees them more clearly than I do, as to where we're headed from a macro point of view. And the outcome, to me, is uh, very, very friendly for the gold price. And, and you have to kind of start with that. And then generalist money, I, I wish I had a time frame, but it's, year, it's years, it's not tomorrow. Generalist investors will come back because the space will be doing well in terms of earnings and cash flow. And then they'll discover, well, gee, these companies have been adding value, even though it isn't reflected in their share price. And then you'll see the sell side get more on their side, and they'll abandon their role as sort of handmaids to the investment bankers and actually pick stocks, which they're not doing now. And so all of these things will take place over a period, maybe even a full decade. But I think it is a long path. But we're in an up cycle in this space And we're still at the very early stage where people are super skeptical and maybe largely because it's the third rail of investment ideas. And we will work towards more of those macro factors that you see coming into play. But keeping it just on the micro for this one last part here, your fund has held Newmont. So what was, at the time of the acquisition, what was your feelings about the deal logic there and how how it's played out? What is your feelings on that? Well, we do have Newmont. I like Newmont. We've always held it. We have funds that require daily liquidity. And so we need to have some measure of names like Newmont that are liquid because you have to worry about the potential for redemptions. And so we have weightings and uh, we don't own Barrick right now, but I would, I would consider that to be one if we had inflows, which we haven't. But our weightings in something like Newmont are a fraction of what they are for GDX. We have no weighting in Barrick. On the other hand, our weighting in Torex or Deter Gold is, and I, I don't, I should have, should have had these numbers, but I don't. But I can tell you it would be four to five, maybe even six times what it be, would be in GDX. So we're so skewed to the mid and smaller cap names where I think the value exists and where I think you would potentially get much more of a, of a lift from a better assessment by the mainstream investor of investing in, in precious metals. Sure, Newmont would be a good stock, and it will be, and Barrick will be good, and Newcrest, and we own Newcrest probably more than the other two, and Agnico and so forth. But where you really stand to get outsized returns would be in, you've got to go beneath the surface. And again, we're one of the very few firms that's doing that. Now Now that we're joining Sprott, we have amplified research ability to due diligence a lot of these kinds of things. So we're going to get even more skewed towards that strategy than we are now. We've seen Barrick increase their dividend. Kirkland yep. Lake just increased that's their dividend. Terrific. Yep. Newmont not yet. Is that the sort of thing yes. that we're going to see more of to get the yes. love back from the generalists? That, so that's right. on. Yeah. And they can because they're generating cash. You know, varying amounts, different companies, but Two years ago, nobody would have dreamed, particularly in the executive suites of the gold mining industry, that we'd even be at, at 1,400, much less, you know, knocking on the door of 1,500. Mm-hmm. And the industry has, you know, kind of 
tamp down operating costs, the all-in sustaining cost of mining has been relatively flat for the last three or four years. And when you get a breakout in the gold price, I mean, your margins go uh, wide and you start to gush cash and they're starting to bump dividends and exactly what they should do. Great. I'd be remiss. I mean, I have one of the better uh, active managers on the stage with me here. We had to dive. You, we need to share with the audience a little bit about how you generate alpha. You've alluded to some of your big positions. Can you maybe take us through that? So I have some of your larger positions, Detour, Torex, West Dome, Pan American Silver, Mag Silver. Talk a little bit about the key factors that led to those investment decisions and where you think the, why they're... Well, they're everyone was different. In our mind, Detour was a very underperforming asset, and we got involved in a proxy battle with the incumbent board. Paulson led the charge. I wasn't, I'm not quite the pit bull that, that Marcello was. But we maintained cordial relations with the outgoing group. But it was clear to us that the asset was underperforming. And by the way, that's a trophy asset. It's a 20-plus year mine life in Canada. Low grade to be sure, but a big land package and the possibility for much more discovery. And I think the headquarter count at the time of the changeover of the board was something like, this is in Toronto, very nice offices in Toronto. Always makes me suspicious. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I think there were 40 to 50 people. They're down to 15. There's a lot of empty office space in Toronto, as you probably know. And, you know, they brought in a good new board. They have a new uh, CEO who is a tough-as-nails kind of operating guy. They were paying hundreds of millions to outside contractors. Now they're, you know, they've cut way back on that. And the operating costs of the asset have gone down substantially. And, and I, I, I'm not good on, without my cheat sheets on remembering specific numbers, but they're generating free cash. And their debt has paid down substantially. And I think we're only halfway there in terms of where they could get just internal things better equipment availability, less turnover of key uh, mine people, all of that kind of thing. It just all adds up. And I think on its own, the stock has the potential to double from here uh, without a takeout. But sure as shooting, you know, going back to the, um, this um, wind down of reserves and in industry production, that company is a, is a trophy asset. And it's beyond me why somebody hasn't figured it out now. But I think they will, and I'm happy to own it without a takeover right now because I think there's enough on the way of internal improvements that will carry the stock higher. But I think our exit strategy here, maybe two, three years out, is going to be a takeover at a big premium to where the stock is trading, hopefully twice where it is now. Right. So that's one. What else is on the list? Yeah, West Dome. Yeah, some of the silver ones might be of interest as well. So Pan American Silver. And yeah, Pan Am Silver. What a uh, terrific company. Smart management. There are three things, three out of the money, or in the, some of the in-the-money calls on a higher silver price. Plus, they're generating free cash and paying a dividend. And um, basically, what most uh, sell-side analysts know about, they're doing a good job with. But they had a big discovery, La Colorada, an existing mine, but a different mining structure, a different geological structure. It will be a separate mine. And they will be announcing preliminary reserves, I think, in December, so not that far away. And that's, that's here and now. But I don't think sell-side investors have figured it out. I don't think even most investors have. But this is like another mine, and it's right on an existing asset that they own that even they didn't know about two years ago. So that's, that's a big plus. 
Then they, they, they took over Tahoe, a silver mine in Guatemala, which had been operating, but then was shut down because there's, Tahoe's management lost the social license. Lots of bad things about Guatemala, but not beyond being fixed. And, and that mine could generate, I believe, uh, in, in terms of tax revenue to the government, 5% of GDP. It was just a huge thing. It's too big not for the Guatemalans to have a self-interest. And Pan Am management is essentially Latin-based, uh, even though they're from Vancouver. But I think they'll do a way better job working with all the local, federal, and, and, and state authorities in Guatemala and the community. The community actually wants this to happen, to get it back and running. So once that is back and running, I forget what it produced, but it's a big, it's a big mine. And then the, the furthest out-of-the-money call is their asset in Argentina. And, of course, it's Argentina. You're not paying anything for it. But, you know, one day Argentina won't be as bad as it is now. And I believe that that is, and I'm, I'm not getting the names because I wouldn't even dare to try <laughs> off the top of my head. That, and we've, looked, we've known about this and people know about it, that's another blockbuster type of development that might be five, seven, ten years, or maybe never, but it's there in, in, in the portfolio and out-of-the-money call on silver that could, all of which would move the needle dramatically. So here's a, here's a stock which trades at a low valuation. It's not a takeover candidate. I think of this more as a management group, which is very skilled at they're zigging while everybody else is zagging. They're taking advantage of the landscape, as they did with Tahoe, to uh, take advantage of a distressed situation. They knew it would be a while before they could get Guatemala back up and running. But part of our thesis is that not only will companies be taken over, but there are smart management groups that will take advantage of a situation when very few other people are. Excellent. Well, John, time is our enemy, unfortunately. We didn't even have time to get into QE and monetary policy and all that sort of thing. We'll have to leave it there. Thank, thank you for taking you the very time much. and sharing your thoughts with us. Okay. Thank you. hope you enjoyed that episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. It's great to hear what John Hathaway has to say after all this time. I found that to be a very enlightening interview on the opportunity, really, in the gold area and gold equities. If you guys like the podcast, feel free to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory or share it online, email it to your friends, and yeah, do tell the students about it, because I think it's pretty helpful to them, and we do have a lot of student listeners, so... Feel free to send in your questions, and until next week, take care.